This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Tayyip Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a podcast we recorded on July 9th, 2022 for the Western Bowel podcast series entitled Fourth Way Magic. How Hermetic and Indigenous Traditions Interface with the Gurdjieff Work. The podcast description is as follows. The Fourth Way is a Western spiritual tradition founded by George Gurdjieff, a mystic of Greek and Armenian origin who taught in Russia, Europe, and America and died in 1949. The system he developed out of his own spiritual search, which is shrouded in mystery, is completely unique and geared towards working with the modern mindset of waking sleep in the West. The fourth-way tradition has been considered by some to be humorless and dogmatically committed to a rigid system of practices and ideas, but this ignores Gurdjieff's own flexibility ranging from playfulness to seriousness. Today's speakers are Dharma heirs of Tayyip Meditation Center founder Robert Daniel Innes, whose teachings were anchored in the fourth way, but ranged widely beyond that source material. In recent years, Rob Schmidt and Stuart Goodnick have explored and adopted practices from the Western Hermetic magical traditions and indigenous traditions, including African and Native Californian. In this talk, they will discuss how the work from these traditions can enrich and expand the indispensable foundation they honor from the fourth way. Rob Schmidt and Stuart Goodnick are the spiritual directors of Taiyu Meditation Center, Rob has made contributions to the practice of anthropological archaeology and currently runs Taiyu's spiritual bookstore in Sebastopol, California, Mini Rivers Books and Tea. Stewart is an executive in a Fortune 500 company and plays the shakuhachi, Japanese bamboo flute, as a spiritual practice. Welcome. Thanks so much for presenting tonight. And um, it's all yours. Thank you. Thanks. <clears throat> Thanks so much. So so I was the one who came up with the... Um, a talk idea, so I think I'll, I'll, I'll start off. I thought I came up with it. <laughs> you always do. <laughs> That's because we're so in tune with each other. Yeah, his his thoughts are my thoughts, but actually it's the other way around. But um, to uh, uh, get it, um, the fourth way, which is um, in some ways our spiritual background, our teacher, our teacher certainly um, had uh, an introduction to it, but not from the standard um, lineage. His was a very different lineage through E.J. Gold and others, and other teachers as well. And and we didn't um, we didn't do things quite the way many of the folks in the fourth way do. And I, over time, we've become more and more acquainted with the differences um, from other fourth-way lineages. We now uh, actually participate in a weekly uh, uh, Zoom meeting with folks from 
well, I don't know how, uh, how, how to say it, that, but there's, there's sort of on the fringe, fringes of um, formal fourth way. Yeah, I, I think they're, they're legitimate lineage holders from people who are students of Gurdjieff. Right. It's just that they are lineages that circumvented, for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part, the Gurdjieff Foundation. Right. And, and um, a lot of people hear about the fourth way and um, it has it has a reputation for um, being rigid and doctrinaire, frankly. And for some of those lineages within the fourth way, that's absolutely true in, in my experience. I'm not going to name names, but um, but there's something to um, the propagation of f- fourth way ideas as a system that feels oppressive as opposed to liberatory. So, um, but nevertheless, our background is, is, is quite, um, quite deeply founded in some of the basic fourth way practices. And our teacher has also elaborated some other materials as well along the way. But, over the last few years, since since uh, Robert Ennis's uh, passing in the late 90s, we've begun to explore and add to both our own personal practices as well as that which we um, are exploring on behalf of the folks we work with as well. And uh, some of those practices include things that are really quite differently founded than the fourth way. And um, that's part of what we're going to talk about tonight. But the question to me is, how do we, how do we integrate these things? How do we bring them together in a, in a meaningful and useful way, respectful to all the sources, and not, um, not beholden to a um, rigid idea about um, Things that need not be held rigidly. So that's the that's the the basic premise of the evening. I don't know if you want to jump in here. Yeah, I, I want to back up a little bit in case uh, not everyone in the audience is familiar with terms like the fourth way. And no, that's uh, right. so, just to um, kind of give some context on what we're talking about. Uh, the fourth way is a Western spiritual tradition that was founded by a uh, unusual, very enigmatic um, uh, mystic of Greek and Armenian origin. His name was George Gurdjieff. And uh, he's mis- mysterious enough, even though he was in the public uh, uh, face in the latter part of his life, that uh, there's arguments about his birth date. Some say 1866, some say 1877. But he was born in the um, uh, uh, that sort of middle uh, uh, Asian area of uh, Armenia, uh, uh, Turkey, Greece. Um, you know that he was in that mixture of ethnicities and in the sphere of the uh, uh, Russian Empire. And he was a seeker. Um, he had many influences that he writes about in books that you can sort of take literally, but probably should take allegorically. So it's, you know, even his personal history is not completely clear. 
But what he did that's uh, most interesting is he traveled throughout Asia. Uh, he partook of a number of different spiritual traditions. I think the best sources we know is that he probably had his deepest training in some esoteric Sufi schools, um, potentially in the Afghan area. But uh, again, all, this is conjecture. But what he did that we do know about was he came back to the West, starting in um, uh, Russia, and he opened up a a spiritual tradition that was completely unique in terms of language, methodology, um, approach. And he began teaching in um, uh, Russia right before the Russian Revolution. And what he unpacked was a, a teaching that was kind of tuned more for a, a modern mindset, a, a mindset that was steeped in scientists, uh, 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 scientism, uh, knew about atoms, knew about, uh, you know, astronomy and things like that. And so it had a sort of on the surface, a kind of intellectual uh, veneer, which is partly why it gets this kind of reputation for being a um, uh, uh, somewhat of an intellectual tradition. But the ideas that he brought are ideas that you can recognize in a lot of different spiritual traditions and the technology or the practices that and the emphasis, I think, were unique and critical and still relevant today. So we're not going to go into the full history of Gurdjieff's arc beyond just saying that, you know, he made his way from Russia because of the revolution, ultimately, um, I think, through Turkey, and he ended up in France, and he founded a school in France and uh, traveled throughout Europe and into to the U.S. Um, and seated this teaching. And ultimately, uh, with his death in 1950, there were a number of uh, people who had been strongly influenced by him, who continued uh, work groups and uh, teaching lineages in the form of uh, group activities and sort of sitting groups and the like. And then a, a foundation we were talking about called the Gurdjieff Foundation um, has been, in a sense, the holder of the uh, copyrights of the materials that he left behind and uh, fancy themselves in many respects as the uh, holders of the legacy. And in some respects, that may be true, and in other respects, not at all. Uh, there's lots of legacies that are out there. And unusual about the fourth way is because it, it is partly uh, an oral tradition and partly a, you know, there's lots of writings about the fourth way, it's still largely taught word of mouth in the form of uh, uh, groups and uh, private activities. And so you won't find fourth way people evangelizing and sometimes it's hard to find groups. And when you find the groups, they're not, uh, um, uh, you know, opening the door and trying to get your registration fees. They're usually closing the door if you arrive a minute late and uh, basically holding a pretty strict protocol about how you enter into that space. And so in that sense, again, you know, it gets this reputation for... Uh, uh, a certain kind of austerity, and in the in the spiritual circles, uh, you know, there's a there's, there's a old joke about <clears throat> how do you tell you know at a, a party of a big spiritual gathering uh, who the fourth wave people are, and it's it's the people who are standing in the uh, corner uh, frowning, not having a good time. So um, that's the reputation. Uh, the reality, though, if you read the literature and you read some of the stories about Gurdjieff, is that he was. Uh, a human being who lived large. He had an amazing presence. He touched a lot of people, even people who 
normally would want to stay far away from him, but he really touched people because of the strength of his presence and the strength of his intention. And he was also a hugely generous human being. Um, you know, in his later years, he'd be known to be like giving candy to children on the streets or taking some of the accumulated skills he had in uh, spiritual healing and applying them to, uh, you know, poor people who just needed needed some help to get by. So he's multidimensional and and a enigmatic figure bigger than, uh, you know, many of the people who came after him. And yet. Uh, some very impressive people followed in his footsteps. So that's in a kind of a nutshell what the fourth way is about. And to echo what Rob was saying, our tradition didn't derive directly from a lineage holder, you know, in the sense of someone who whose teacher or teacher's teacher studied directly with Gurdjieff. Uh, our our teacher Robert Innes studied with um, uh, kind of a shape shifting guy named E.J. Gold, who's a fancies himself a spiritual shaman and uh, is very creative at shape-shifting into a tradition and living that tradition fully and vitally and then shape-shifting into another tradition. And yet, even with EJ's community, the language of the fourth way and the precision of that language was something that um, he kept using and uh, our teacher Robert used it. And it was, it, it was, it's kind of the language in which we would formulate how we think about what we're doing in spiritual work. So um, that was our um, education, Stuart's and my education. And um, um, I am still one of those folks who, is convinced that um, we need to be grounded in one tradition before it's going to be advantageous to look at other at what others have to offer. In other, in other words, uh, the spiritual smorgasbord is not for me, and I don't think it works works in the sense that um, real transformation is supported when we uh, hop to and fro from traditions. And yet tonight's topic is about how we have been exploring some of these other traditions. Now, now uh, um, we were having a conversation actually about this um, with these fourth way friends this morning. In fact, uh, the ones I told you about who uh, are doing something called the Seekers Cafe seekers after truth being related to um, what Gurdjieff was up to. And um, at least one of those other folks, um, well, actually a couple, um, have also had some experience in exploring indigenous, various indigenous traditions. And one of the points that our friend made was that in order to be able to use and employ those other traditions uh, faithfully and um, with utility, um, one has to be passive to that tradition. Now that's referring to the fourth way language of active, passive, and harmonizing the three forces. That's, that's uh, you know, 
fourth-way language. But what that uh, means in practice is that um, one has to begin from a place of acceptance. What you're being taught when you, when you enter into these other traditions may, be, may appear at first to be entirely unrelated to uh, what you've been taught to think of as spiritual practice. And goodness knows, you know, um, uh, I had to, um, I've had to um, let go of ideas about and judgments about spiritual traditions um, as we've explored um, these, in, these various indigenous um, ways. There are two particular ones that we've become acquainted with. One is through our friend who's a uh, Northern California Pomo Indian, um, and another through the, uh, a friend who's a lineage holder actually in uh, a couple of traditions, but pr primarily this African uh, Dagara tradition, West African Dagara tradition. And being passive to what you are being presented with is, um, it seems obvious, it seems straightforward. But um, the, the point I, I want to start off with here is that it means that the process of self-examination has yet another topic, another area to explore. Because we grow up in our Western culture, and um, there are so many things we take for granted about how the world works, about how the mind works, about how the emotions work, about how the bodies work, um, that um, we don't even really grasp in their entirety. And being passive to a totally foreign way of presenting understanding about the world, understanding that may correspond to what many of the folks on this call may understand what transformation is or the direction of transformation. But um, it's the encounter with these um, non-overlapping, I don't, I don't know if magisteria is the right word to use here, but these non-overlapping uh, perspectives and traditions is very familiar to me in the fourth way, because that's one of the um, mechanicality of normal human life and activity, as people understand in the West, is the subject matter of the fourth way. And when we have to confront the manifestations of a wholly different um, universe, really. Um, that's both challenging, sometimes exciting, but decidedly useful in this project of self-examination that is central to the fourth way and, and in my view, spiritual practice in, in general, but, but maybe not, depending on how some of these traditions configure what that means. Go ahead. Yeah, I want to go a little deeper on uh, something that you said. Um, 
So Rob was talking about self-examination and um, the importance of that as a kind of precursor to entering into a uh, different tradition, an indigenous tradition uh, um, that one may not have the cultural context or they, you know, have been raised within. So this is an interesting question. Um, the fourth way in the Gurdjieff work um, and its emphasis starts with the premise that in our ordinary states of consciousness, uh, we as human beings uh, are largely spend our time in a state of waking sleep. So waking sleep means that our life is mediated through our conceptions, our perceptions, the kind of the, the chords being played by sensation, emotion, and thought. Each of these things we build a world with, um, actually a world is given to us more typically in our uh, upbringing. And we inhabit that world and the constructs uh, in our field of consciousness are the things that we take to be real. And so we build a world that way. And we have a, you know, programming from our culture, programming from our family, programming that we voluntarily uh, inject within ourselves by the things that we uh, uh, encounter and the experiences we have. But we live in this mediated existence in which we put most of our attention on our thoughts about things, <clears throat> thoughts and feelings about things, and not necessarily hold a space for a being touched by the universe as it is. And so in that waking sleep, um, a lot, you know, which in the fourth way, there's a term used, you know, uh, identification. You know, that waking, in that waking sleep, we were identified with the contents of the dream. And so the fourth way practice, uh, the ideas, the practices of self-observation and self-remembering, uh, many of the different exercises that Gurdjieff taught and many of the exercises that have come since him are focused on bringing our attention back to observing how we behave as organisms as we are we begin to observe our thoughts and our feelings and our sensations and our bodies from a place of uh, seniority or a place where we are beyond that. And that, you know, at the beginning of that kind of practice, uh, we might get fleeting glimpses that this is the what's going on. But ultimately, in the tradition, the intent is to begin to see more and more clearly the degree to which we live the, most of the contents of our lives in this uh, identified mechanical way. And ultimately, in that scene, there's an opening uh, and other possibilities become available. One of the possibilities that becomes available is being able to live to a larger degree in a kind of equanimity or a spaciousness that is not always being buffeted by the internal contents of our psychological structure. And so if we can get to that place even in moments or even somewhat more reliably as practice continues, we're able to hold a place and at least be aware when our psychological programming asserts itself and wants to take control of the situation or take control of what our experience is. 
And I'm saying all this because when, if we're not raised in a culture, like a, let's, I'll use the example of the, the practice that I've been involved in, uh, a West African uh, divinatory practice. Uh, it's uh, a Dagra uh, spiritual practice or divinatory practice. If, if you're not raised in that culture, then as a Westerner approaching it, uh, it, it's hard not to have some, I don't know, some, some interference pattern formed in your relationship because of your own cultural matrix. We may project on things. We may assume we know things. We may understand concepts and words in a particular way. But as long as we are doing that kind of asserting and we're not even aware that we're doing it, then something else is happening than the pure content of that particular tradition. So if you can attain to uh, an equanimity that allows for putting some of that interference pattern aside or allow, allowing that to, to sub, sub, uh, be subdued, then it's possible to be open, completely open to whatever this tradition has and whatever forces or energy and uh, energetic matrix this tradition has and allow it to touch you. And that's what our friend that Rob was quoting this morning was meaning when he said that in order to really enter into a indigenous practice, but the same is true for a practice for which we are not tuned culturally, one has to enter into it um, uh, passively. And passive doesn't mean like you're a rug. Passive means that the, the active part of you is actually actively uh, stepping back from the identifications that arise when you're programming <laughs> sees something it doesn't understand. And so we have to be actively passive. You know, it's, it's, it, you know, if you, if you will, we're not doing something, we're undoing something in this process. And by undoing, we can allow ourselves to be open and be penetrated by another tradition. Any questions at this point? Well, why would you do that if you are um, bonded to a particular tradition which you feel, uh, you know, has what is needed for you? Um, the re for, I can only speak for myself, um, and that is that um, um, I came to realize or seem to understand that there was more in heaven and earth ratio than was dreamt of in my philosophy, by which I mean that um, um, a tradition is um, the foundation and the universe is always changing. That's one of the things the Buddhists have very clearly established from, at least in my view. Everything is always changing. And um, when I um, began to do things like the Conscious Family Festival, which some of you may remember, um, I came into contact with folks from, from a number of different traditions, including this 
uh, Homo native Californian tradition. And, um, and I came to see that if I projected my fourth way informed views onto what um, that tradition would assert, it, um, there was a mismatch. Furthermore, I came to see that I could really expand areas of my own um, constitution, heart um, in particular, and uh, body appreciation in particular, um, that could um, expose my fourth way uh, habits of training to new information that was absolutely critical for me to continue my own growth. So, um, so it's a great question. And it's not as if I've left behind in any way what, whatsoever my own, my own um, deep and enduring foundation. In fact, I just, I just, uh, to, I experience it as, as, as being expanded into, you know, uh, you, you mentioned in the introduction, BJ, that, that uh, we do, we've just done our 400th um, uh, mystical positivist show, which are conversations with people from different traditions. And at first, when we, when we first started the show, um, those very first podcasts, I thought um, that I didn't have that much to get from those folks. Uh, you know, I, th I thought a little, little here and there, but I came to realize that uh, what a foolish and, and niggardly small um, way of looking at the opportunity I had to tune into the incredible richness of the understanding of these folks who had, who had lived their unique lives, done their unique practices, and um, were perfectly willing to converse with us about them in ways where we tried mutually to understand each other. So, so that, that foundation helped me to, um, to move towards these practices that I'm, that I'm talking about. And, and as, you know, as I said, um, to enrich my own practice, you know, vastly expand my own practice, really, such that, um, you know, I'm, um, I am really happy to be in, in uh, the space where I can um, find myself like a little child or baby. Because that's kind of what you, when you get, you know, I, if you read just, just ordinary uh, uh, books about people who go to a totally different country where they don't speak the language at first or, and they don't, they don't understand the cultural practices, um, people are treated like a baby. And, the, and, and there's a richness in that because the baby can learn 
without having to process things through the intellect. And that's one of the, one of the richnesses that I have found for myself and with the particular experiences that, that I've had. So, um, we, we just got a question from Mary Angelon Young, and, and I don't think we'd listen to the interview that, that uh, you're referring to. So, um, oh, that, that sounds very cool. Yeah. We, we have had a, we have had a, a conversation with an African uh, a practitioner fairly recently. Zulu. Yeah. Um, I want to just answer the, because the, it's, it's such a good question. Um, uh, I'm going to answer it in a couple of different parts. One is that um, a few years after our um, teacher had died and, and um, I think we had the bookstore open in the first early years. Um, we came to meet a um, uh, a guy who's a, a friend now uh, named uh, Carl Jones, and he was a long time, like a twenty five year uh, member of the uh, Gurdjieff Foundation. I mean, he was like, he he was so forth way that he actually was doing this look at the time where he was bald and had this big mustache, and he really looked like he Gurdjieff. really did look like look like Gurdjieff quite a bit. <laughs> and so, um, but what was interesting about Carl was that um, at some point in his uh, work with the foundation, there came a point where he needed something more. And um, what he found was the Ifa um, uh, African divinatory tradition. And so he studied that. He, I think he went to Africa and studied with elders there and um, continued. He lives in Cleveland, but continued to deepen in that, uh, became a diviner, you know, uh, teaches d divination and gives divinations. And... At that time, this was uh, quite a while back. I mean, he even did um, uh, a divination uh, for me. I don't know that he did one for you, but uh, he he did one with me, and uh, uh, you know, it was it did it was interesting to see because it was so unusual. But what he you know ultimately you know he said that the door was open for me in this tradition, and at the time it just didn't feel like that was something that uh, was something I wanted to do because the, uh, we were just, we we're really still formulating and working with, uh, uh, the new phase of work with Tayu in the, in the wake of our teacher's death, you know, a number of years before. So in that sense, you know, I didn't say yes at that time, uh, to an invitation. Um, so now fast forward to, um, uh, more recently, Rob mentioned this uh, event that uh, he he began and organized with the help of many of you on this call uh, called the uh, Festival of uh, uh, Conscious Parenting or the Conscious Family Festival. It had a couple of incarnations, but uh, in one of these, one of the participants was a friend of ours uh, uh, named Teresa Dentino, who has, um, besides working within a, her own sort of familial tr tradition of uh, uh, the Strega tradition of Italian wise women. She also trained in this, in a Dagra uh, divinatory tradition. And we had a silent auction as part of the fundraising for this. And one of the uh, things she donated was a, um, a divination. 
and no one bought the divination. So uh, at the end of the uh, auction, Rob and I thought, well, we'll uh, why not? Let's let's do this. Uh, and um, so we we together did a divination with our friend Teresa, taking turns. Yeah, yeah, and and. And the way the divination works and the way that the divinatory practice works is that uh, the diviner, in this case, Teresa, um, uh, has a relationship with a uh, entities that in that tradition are called wetame. They can be thought of as earth elementals, elementals of the wild. They can be thought of angels. You can think of them in any, there's a lot of ways of mapping them, but they're uh, intelligences that, basically mediate or provide a, um, uh, you know, information for the diviner than to relate to the uh, people receiving the divination or the person receiving the divination. And in that practice, typically what's prescribed are rituals. And so this is a very ritual-centric kind of practice. You And the rituals can be simple. They can be like pouring water on a tree. They can be more complex. There's things called soul washings. There's bathing in milk. There's all sorts of things, burying eggs. There's, there's a lot of, there's a whole sort of ritual language that's associated with this. But uh, for Rob and me, uh, we were given, uh, we were each given, each given things to do and, 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 um, you know, one of the things uh, that we decided to do um, or to, to enact these rituals was we were going on a trip up to the Sierra, Sierra Nevada mountains in California here, actually right at the Nevada border. And um, so we decided, well, well, we'll enact these traditions because they were meant to be outside. Um, in the in, yeah the, the, in rit- the landscape the rituals were supposed to be done outside so, right. so we we so, would we would do it up there as part right. of our trip we drove up um, and then we realized we'd forgotten to get some of the some of the items uh, one of the items was a uh, bird seed there were several other items that we'd forgotten also so we, oh you know we go off to a to a su- large supermarket in a nearby town just across the border in Nevada. We walk in the door and an employee of the store comes up to us and said, did you remember the bird seed? So, and where my, my, you know, my tongue, my uh, eyes open, my tongue lolls on the, on the ground. I'm like, what the heck just happened? Yeah. And there was another item uh, that I don't recall at, at the moment um, that she also uh, directed us to in this store. So we went, we went and got the items and some other things that we needed for dinner, I guess. And, um, and then she would and ended up being our checker. And I'm like trying to, trying to ascertain if she knew things that I didn't imagine she could know. And there was no evidence whatsoever of that. And yet she was, she was, I mean, I've never had someone an employee of a grocery store asked me if we remembered <laughs> the bird seed yeah, or so, anything like that when I came in the store. So that, that got our attention, uh, certainly. Right. Um, that in itself isn't enough to, uh, you know, you know, explain my own connection with the tradition because it was still something that we, it was very interesting and certainly, um, uh, resonated, um, uh, 
but well, there were other there there were other things as, yeah. as well. You know, I, I did my my ritual and uh, at, at dusk, and um, I was supposed to um, wait for a response from the universe. And literally the second I completed the ritual, a coyote starts howling. And we never heard a coyote again the rest of the day, or had heard, heard a coyote before. I'm not saying that there's um, necessarily anything to it, but it makes me question, it helped me to question the rigor of the scientific worldview and its um, power to explain phenomena such as we've just described yeah. and, and other phenomena as well. So, so there were other divinations probably like a year later. Uh, I won't go into the details of that right now, but uh, each time we would do divinations with our friend, something like that would happen. There'd be some kind of uh, uh, juice of a, a different category. And, but the interesting thing for me was in, um, I think it was, was it 2020? It was like uh, shortly after COVID, I think. Um, uh, we, I, I don't even remember. It could have been, I may be off by a year, but uh, uh, we did a divination with our friend. Um, it had been a while, but our friend Teresa is very funny because she does not proselytize. And so she's having an argument with the Wedeme, you know, <laughs> you know, it's like, no, I'm not going to say that. You know, I'm not going to say that. And, um, uh, because she's being instructed. To yeah. They're, they're telling her. Yeah. So, and, and I say, just, just say it. And, um, <clears throat> what she said was they, they want to, um, claim me for the tradition. So in that tradition, the only way you can become a diviner, you can't just say, I'm going to be a diviner. You have to be, uh, uh, claimed the, the, you know, the spirit, uh, the Wedeme will say, we want to work with this person. And then there's a, then it becomes a very different process. And that process, uh, ultimately, uh, conc not concludes, but there, there's a major step in a process called merging. But, but basically I was asked, I was asked point blank. And um, at that moment for me, um, it, it just seemed like uh, I had a yes. So it wasn't like I was trying to fill something that wasn't filled in my tradition. I was simply invited to do something. And so I said yes. And that's partly uh, the sense of going with something or moving with something that's sort of uh, moving towards you. Um, it doesn't at all mean that uh, I'm giving up anything, as Rob said. And in fact, our, our friend, uh, 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 Teresa, has, you know, says that for her, you know, her specialty as a diviner is connecting people with their uh, uh, lineages. So there may be familial lineages or different kinds of lineages that one may have a connection to that may or may not be out of the Dogra tradition, but it is uh, so... In this sense, then um, there's nothing. There's nothing to give up, and there's nothing. There's nothing that was really incomplete. So much as uh, I was invited, and the feeling was to say yes and to move with that. And so I'm saying that because I didn't. You know, this isn't. 
it didn't arise out of like me saying, Hey, I, this is something I want to do. Uh, in fact, it wasn't something I expected I wanted to do. It's just something that, uh, uh, arose and I've continued to move with it, but it's a different, it's a very different modality than the, um, fourth wave modality. Um, the modality, you know, is, a, uh, there's a lot of, sh- you know, shrine making and the shrines have to be made out of with figures that are made from uh, clay that you have to source yourself, you know? And so it's like, it's a very, it's messy, it's dirty. It's, uh, uh, and yet, uh, it's very connected to nature. And, uh, for me, what I find very, uh, uh enriching about it is that it's pulling me out into nature. Rob doesn't need this because he gardens all the time. But for me, it's like pulling me into uh, our uh, natural space in a way that I really didn't have a relationship with. And and for, for myself, in terms of getting involved with the uh, uh, Northern California Pomo uh, uh, dear friend that, that uh, we developed through the connection through the Conscious Family Festival, actually, um, she invited us to a grandmother ocean workshop and I'm like well I don't know that doesn't sound like something I'd normally do but my my trust the trust I'd come to develop um, in in her manifestation and and I later came to realize that she had done an incredible amount of work that most people I mean, her mother rejected her at birth and, um, and, you know, she had, she had many and continues to have many, many challenges just at the, the ordinary level of living. But she has also demonstrated a kind of, um, open heartedness that, um, most people with those challenges would not have been able to do. So, um, so I'm really glad that that I've pursued that and um, and it's it's now started uh, to open me up to stuff I completely um, that was kind of poisoned for me by by my my anger with the Catholicism I grew up with quite honestly so she has helped me open up to stuff aspects that came in um, um, not because she's a, she's a Catholic apologist by any means, <laughs> quite, quite, quite the contrary, but, um, but I have found it to be uh, quite helpful. And it, and once again, um, it offered a perspective I don't think I would have ever, um, accessed. So, so I guess if there's a theme here, um, it's, it seems as if we're looking at a very personal kind of um, personal doors opening with persons. And, um, and I suspect that there may be something true about that, not just only with indigenous traditions, Certainly my relationship with uh, Robert Ennis, my teacher, was uh, opened through a personal, uh, a completely, I didn't know, I wasn't looking for for a teacher when I met him. 
And yet I was um, uh, magnetically entrained um, in a way that um, I could not gainsay. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting that it's these personal things, um, two persons that can be doors, at least for me. Now, other people may be different. Um, but, um, but that's, um, and the irony is, as I started off saying earlier, is that the fourth way has this incredible elaborated worldview. I mean, it's, it's, it's a thing of beauty, really. Um, if you, if you really explore it, because Gurdjieff was explaining processes of the universe, processes of how human bodies, minds, hearts work, processes of the way uh, planets interact with each other and with stars and galaxies, etc. All these incredibly elaborated um, processes. And it's come, it, it also, for me, has been fed by who I meet and what they, what they invite me to do. And, um, and I, and I'm, um, I'm not going to say no to that. So th that was like a, a, a 25 minute answer, I think, to your question, BJ. <laughs> Maybe we should pause for a question, other questions. Yes, please just unmute if anyone would like to make a comment or has a question. Yeah. I have a comment slash question, I suppose. Um, I wonder if you would agree with the statement that in a lot of ways, the, you know, Gurdjieff, the, the system or the way I, I came to understand it was very focused on this kind of Western civilization problem that have, has been noted that we have very specific problems in our, you know, like you, you pointed this to scientism frame and everything we got with it. And so, so much of the way that, day-to-day -day machinery set up is kind of very pointed towards addressing that. And that's what I found very attractive about the system and still find very attractive about the system because it's so trying to get at that thing. And then it feels like that was such a huge undertaking that it kind of becomes like the, you know, center of gravity is to crack that nut. But then once you crack that nut, it's quite explicit that, you know, you are life, <laughs> real time is your evolutionary continual growth chamber um, and there's so much more beyond that. And almost like, why would you try to almost containerize that into the tradition when you have life itself to be open to? And then as part of that, it's not what I'm hearing is like the mystical aspects of life are wholly embodied, represented by these traditions and just another way of stepping into, you know, life beyond the scientism or however you think about the, the nut we're trying to crack in the Western. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so it's, it's an interesting uh, uh, comment, and I, I agree that um, the there the fourth way obviously has since it evolved in a Western European context and uh, uh, Western uh, and with, the U.S. With, with with the Western within a Western intelligentsia yeah. primarily. Yeah, that that yes, the nut the nut that was being that it was trying to crack was. Uh, the peculiar personalities that were forming in people um, as a result of the uh, 
the scientific worldview, the uh, colonial worldview, the you know the it's just uh, the Western civilization worldview, and and what I found, it, you know, you have to dig a little deeper, I think, in that in the fourth way tradition to find that the mystical aspects, and it's there, it really is there, but you have to you have to you have to either both know where to look and how to look uh, because a lot of the focus is, is on the primary problem of this problem of identification, uh, our egoism, our vanity, and the, you know, the, the personality that drives the, uh, our relationship to life. Now, just actually this morning, we were, as we were talking uh, with uh, uh, this group of uh, senior fourth way practitioners that we uh, uh, partake in, one one of the gentlemen who has had a lot of experience with foundation groups, the Gurdjieff Foundation groups, you know, does, does has commented that he's he sees a lot of people who spend thirty years, you know, really uh, trying to fix themselves. You know, it's like like they construe what they're doing as trying to fix themselves, as opposed to coming to an understanding that there's nothing to fix and that it's the relationship to that thing that you think you need to fix that actually is the, is, is the thing to release. And so there's, there's quite a difference between, uh, you know, someone who's like earnestly going to their group meetings and, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, beating themselves up every time they, uh, you know, make a mistake versus someone who sort of gets beyond that and, is more at this place of surrendering to something higher. And a lot of the work, even, even like one of Gurdjieff's um, primary students who uh, led the Gurdjieff Foundation for, for many years, Madame de Salzman, would write in later years about this bringing the higher in, you know, bring, you know, bringing higher energy down, bringing this energy in. And the focus was on something that really to me has a lot more a resonance with uh, things I've experienced and practiced in the Western magical tradition. And actually, interestingly enough, I find the same patterning coming up in the, the, the uh, Dagra work that I've been doing that the, the focus is really about being of service in this particular phenomenal realm by bringing higher energy down and helping to, support or counter uh, uh, an energetic configuration that's uh, out of balance in a lot of ways. And I've noticed that this, this um, line of kind of focus um, emerges in a number of different esoteric communities about an energetic work, you know, to really restructure our relationship with life in general, uh, the biosphere and uh, our, our relationships with ourselves. And so this work's being done at various levels and in various ways. And so the fourth, the, the, the fourth way to me is a step in, in its traditional understanding is a stepping stone. As I said, if you go deeper into that tradition, you can find everything we're talking about there. But a lot of times people get stuck in this uh, uh, place of trying to fix themselves because um, when one begins when one begins to look at the imperfection of our uh, psychological organism, it's very easy to get frustrated and uh, want to be in control. But it's that wanting to be in control that's the very thing that uh, 
uh, is driving the machine. And so letting that go allows some other possibilities to take place. And, and I, w- I just want to add, it's uh, parenthetical to this um, question, but uh, there was a book published just a few, a couple of years ago, maybe by uh, an Australian or a guy in Australia named uh, Robert Azizi, uh, which makes a point of collecting a bunch of um, very little known Gurdjieff practices, which probably originate, at least they seem to, in many cases, originate in the um, Christian mystical traditions um, that Gurdjieff was was surely familiar with from his background. So... um, the fact that it's taken, you know, uh, 80 years or 70 years or something like that for that stuff to be published and to become better known is, um, is interesting, but, um, um, it's, it's changing the fourth way itself yeah. as well. Is that the, yeah, the, the book I believe is called Gurdjieff's Transformational Contemplations. And the, the author's father is easy. Who's a, he's, he's a, actually a, a Marianite priest. A Marianite priest. Uh, but he was a student of a of a, a fourth way group leader who had worked directly with Gurdjieff. And right. um, and and it's a, it, it is interesting because the the one of the centerpieces of this pra- the practices that he identifies that Gurdjieff was teaching later in his uh, teaching career was. Uh, Things very similar to and sometimes identical to the prayer of the heart, which is where you say, you know, Lord, have mercy upon me or in, in the simplest form. So these were these were prayers and these are contemplations about asking for help and asking for an opening at the heart level, um, which is, you know, the, the language around that seems completely different than, you know, uh, observe yourself, you know, and and. Uh, uh, but it, but it is. Well, it, it is because those 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 better known aspects of the Gurdjieff tradition um, were ones that um, needed to be applied by this these, this high high class intelligentsia audience that Gurdjieff um, was speaking to in the early part of the twentieth century. Yeah, but I, you know, and then uh, again, you, you know, in the Gurdjieff language. You know, they um, uh, applying the practice or observing oneself or bringing the intention to observe oneself in, in, that, in this way, you know, can be thought of as the what they call the first conscious shock. But actually opening yourself and receiving something beyond yourself uh, is what completes the octave. And that's the second conscious shock. And that's that's the the higher transformation or the transformation of the um, heart. Or that that's. A way of saying that, you know, different people may have different, slightly different interpretations of that, but they're different processes. So even the fourth way, and, and uh, to, just to wrap up uh, Jill, the answer to Jill's question, it's like even the fourth way is changing in ways that um, who knows what the, what the future will bring. Gurdjieff himself said that, that things would completely the way that he taught publicly would fall apart within a couple of generations and uh, by the third generation would be um, no longer would no longer serve 
In fact, um, we recently we had a one of our mystical positivist conversations with one of the um, remaining high level Gurdjieff movement teachers, a woman in Canada, and um, and it was a wonderful conversation. But what she lamented was that the transmission was not happening anymore. She wasn't able or people weren't tuning into or whatever it was. So things are changing for the Gurdjieff movement as well. Yeah, it's a, it was a little, a little bit like yoga in the West. People mistake the form for the interior work. Right. That's right. Yeah, BJ. Well, there's two things that come to mind that I'd like to mention and, and see if you have anything, any comments about them. One is, I mean, you've been speaking about the value. It, to me, it seems like the value of being open, of, uh, you know, specifically of being open to other traditions. And I've, I've just found tremendous value in that. And also, um, there are some who really have the perspective that there shouldn't be mixing. Mm -hmm. Because there's one lineage or tradition that will take you where you need to go. And um, if you start spending your energy with, you know, with other uh, ways, then it's, un it's less likely that you're going to be able to follow your path to the end. And uh, I, I wonder... I wonder if you'd say something about that, if, you know, if you'd have something to say about that. And then the second thing is that the other thing that that's really striking me from what you're saying is that you're talking about other people, if I'm understanding this, like being a doorway um, of connecting to um, a process with someone, I mean, un unexpectedly, who, who you come upon, who you make a connection with. And who has something to offer you, you feel that. Maybe they have some mastery, maybe they're further along in some way, or they just have something that could be food for you. Um, do you think that um, it's irreplaceable on the path, the need to have um, to connect with other human beings or another human being who can kind of bring you further along? Or, you know, these days, so many people, um, you know, are on their own path, it seems, and may have some connection with a path, but not that kind of a relationship that I'm hearing you, you guys talk about. So you want me to take the first question? You want to take the second? Yeah, I'll go for it. Because the first question, I, 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 well, let, me, let me just interject for because uh, I was going to say, it doesn't have to be a person, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> that's one of the things. That's one of the things that um, I've come to see that other living beings, for example, um, can be um, can inform. And I've heard authentic-sounding stories from people whose testimony I trust uh, uh, discussing. Um, that sort of thing. So, so just, but, but I, that. yeah, I just want the, the first question you asked is it, its own thing. And so I just wanted to respond to that because I didn't want that to get lost because it's an important uh, piece here. Um, 
so there's a value in being open to other traditions, uh, for sure. And, uh, there's value in being deep within a single tradition. Uh, so, you know, what are we, what are we talking about here? Well, you know, we, we, First of all, the DNA of our school, like the DNA of the school of many of yours, has been to be open to other traditions. You know, our teacher met the teacher of many of you uh, uh, by virtue of going out and meeting, you know, basically uh, Dharma teachers wanting to make friends and, you know, have a conversation. And so there, uh, it's in our DNA in our, our school's DNA, just like it's, a, it's in our store's DNA, in our store's DNA and on our radio show's DNA to have these conversations and to be able to be open to other traditions and let, let ourselves be touched by those traditions. So for us, I'd say that just even, even while we were practicing with our teacher that uh, we were certainly penetrated by Buddhism quite a bit, just because of some of the relationships we had and, uh, uh, people we knew, but still there's a period of time where it's important to go deep with a, uh, a teaching and allow to get to a point where one can move, you know, and start to explore other things, but there needs to be a foundation. And I say this, you know, I, I'm, I'm observing, for instance, um, even as I, embark in, in a community of people who are diviners and, uh, you know, associated with my mentor in the Dogro tradition. Um, it's, it's very, very interesting. I, you know, I have to, I have to sort of set aside uh, preconceptions and things like that. And yet I, I also can appreciate the value of the training that I have as a foundation to approach this work because, there's a bunch of stuff I don't have to go through in that tradition in order to start to function in a certain way in that tradition. Um, and that's a, that's a little, and I'm not putting, I don't mean to put errors on that. It's just that it's, 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 there's a certain kind of work you have to go through in any tradition to sort out, um, and harmonize the, uh, uh, the being and the organism. There's lots of different ways of doing that. The fourth way has a way of doing that. But even in the Dogra tradition, you know, uh, um, it's, it's actually f funny that I was, my mentor told me, you know, when I first made my first shrine and, uh, uh, which is sort of like the kickoff for, uh, this, this line of training, uh, she said that I could expect to be given lots of rituals and having to, you know, that the, you know, it's very common for people to have to like, you know, they're, they're like on over overdrive having to do a bunch of this stuff. Uh, uh, and, and those rituals are all about working out and sort of, uh, healing and balancing energetic, uh, uh, manifestations in one's, um, uh, psychic space. And in my case, I didn't have so much, you know, the message I was getting was cool it, you know, <laughs> settle out, you know, you don't have to be the, the best student here. You don't have to, you know, uh, you know, it's like I was, I was sort of in a sense being held back, uh, which was exactly what I needed to be in relationship with the, this tradition because my habitual tendency is to launch into something and to, uh, you know, try to climb to the top. And in this case, I was, I was definitely, 
not being allowed to do that. And that's what I needed, but it was a different, it was a whole different sort of uh, thing. And I attribute part of that to, besides being pushed back on something that was my own kind of mechanicality, there's other stuff that I don't have to deal with because I dealt with it in the uh, foundational work that I did uh, in my root tradition. And honestly, I think uh, other, uh, you know, if you look at other traditions, Eastern traditions, uh, uh, you know, there, there are, there's a no- notion, I think, in the uh, um, Vedic traditions of a root guru, and, and then you can have other teachers, and those teachers may be quite different. And I think in Buddhism, you, you, you have this, you know, you'll have your teacher, but then you might go to other teachers to learn different things. And so uh, I don't think, I think that template is, is and, and the propriety and integrity you have to have to do that is the same. It's just that we live in a world where we have such a mishmash of different traditions coming together. It's actually, it's, it's uh, crazy wonderful in a way. I mean, it's like every spiritual tradition on the planet you have, you can have some access to, and you can actually have access now to people who know something about the transmission of that uh, tradition. So, but it still boils down to the same thing. You know, you have a root tradition and, and that root has to be deep enough to provide you with a certain kind of sustenance from, you know, the depths so that then you can branch out and, uh, uh, be, you know, allow a natural growth process to take place, which is just a reflection of who you are. So, um, I want to come back to this uh, aspect of the personal connection, the heart to heart transmission, because that to me is where, um, where the juice flows. And, um, and one of the things I haven't mentioned yet, um, that I've gotten from actually both, both, uh, the, the divinations with the dagger, but also from the, my interaction with our, our dear Pomo friend um, is um, a, re, a what, would you, what would you call it, a reinvigoration, perhaps, of my relationship with my teacher now deceased 24 years. Because I, uh, you know, I grew up thinking, you're dead, you're dead. <laughs> There's not, there's, uh, there's, there's not, uh, there's not a lot of, it might be some kind of amorphous, I don't know, um, voodoo that, that could happen with, with a dead uh, being, someone who had been in a human body. And now I, um, am not skeptical in the way that I used to be. I just don't know how it's supposed to manifest for people in different situations, people in different traditions. But I do, I keep getting confirmation that my teacher and I ain't done. We are, we are co-creating as we speak, actually. (laughs) Right. And, um, and, and it is a, a deepening of that relationship and an exploration for me of what that, what that will continue to develop in meaning.
for myself. And, and, and the way that has arisen for me is that these, these friends from whom I, with whom I have had a deep connection that, that we've tried to describe, um, have, have created a way for me to trust the heart connection that was always present, but that my skeptical Western mind wanted to um, deny. So um, that's been a pretty cool thing. And I don't want to, you know, it, it, it's, it's, um, it's not voodoo. It's, it's something that is, um, that helps me direct my, my own practice, actually. And has seemed at least to me to, to, to deepen it. I mean, I, I could be fooling myself. I, I, I'm always looking. That's, that's definitely what I got from the fourth way. There's never, there's never a, a seat with the laurel wreath on it waiting for me to, to uh, um, let go of striving. But, um, um, but for things that um, I used to dismiss, I have an open mind. And I have an open heart. And I even have, I think, more and more, this is the hardest part, a body that can allow that um, connection to become more vibrant. At least I hope so. It has been doing that of late. Thank you. Interesting questions. Did I answer the second question? Did we answer the second question, really? I think your answers were great. Okay. Appreciate it. The other questions? Yeah. We've got a few minutes left here. Yeah. Rob and Stuart, hi. I'm so happy to see you tonight. Good to Ditto. see you. Ditto. I, I realize how much I miss you all. I have a connection through, to you through Ginny at least a little bit uh, so I hear tales <laughs> but, uh, very so stimulating and I look forward to talking with some of my friends on the call further when, when this is over but a couple of things are coming to mind the first thing is that what you're talking about with, with not being a spiritual smorgasbord I think you're talking about a level of spiritual maturity that's only possible at the stage in development that you are in. And um, from my own experience in reading about the great people that I've known and loved, you know, I mean, Thomas Merton came in touch with Suzuki Roshi in, uh, or um, not Suzuki Roshi, but uh, uh, the other one, the one who wrote old books. Uh, at, yeah, at, at Columbia, but it was years until he actually opened up and traveled and wanted to go to Tibet. Uh, so it's, it's like that the, the tradition was, was, so, was so deeply implanted in him. And then out of that, he could 
enter into something really, really wonderful. And I'm thinking also how much it's tied into the fact that, you know, think of generations past and how limited would have been their scope of who they would ever have come in contact with, you know, really, except some priest or a bishop or some wandering mendicant rarely would ever pass through their city. But what we have, what we have now is, is such a rich possibility of encountering people from so many different traditions. And, you know, so I'm, I'm celebrating that. And at the same time, I'm recognizing that this whole thing about maturity is something that, um, yeah, what we need to keep in mind. That's because this, this talk would not have been the same to a brand new group of people. But as I'm looking at who's here, I, I'm seeing that I, I think this talk can be, can be heard from a whole different place. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, you're reminding me that, that um, or at least something in what you just said reminds me that, that um, I, I get that this is a time. It's not just a where, you know, as we've said, which and it's true, that um, this is a time when when it's possible to connect at whatever level um, of uh, depth um, with many traditions in a way that was not true. I don't know very much a hundred years ago or hundreds of years ago. Um, but I'm but I think there's something in particular about this indigeneity. Um, aspect to this. And, um, you know, I, um, I don't remember hearing, hearing about when I was, when I was young in practice, young in the world of spiritual, uh, of, of our tradition in my twenties, I don't remember hearing about people so much authentically connecting with, uh, Native traditions. Um, one of the actually one of the earliest uh, um, tradition. I mean, uh, conversations we had on the mystical positivist was with a a guy, and I'm struggling to remember his name with my a- antique memory here. Who um, honoring the medicine was uh, was the his 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 book Cohen. Yes, Ken Cohen, and 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 he. Um, you know, was deeply implicated in, in uh, Chinese medicine, but he became a um, uh, Cherokee. I think. No, no, it's, it's one of the First Nations in uh, in Canada, okay. really connected, and that was that was his book honoring the medicine, and that was that was the first time I'd heard of a of someone with an, a nice Jewish boy connecting with um, something like. Um, a native tradition, but subsequently, you know, in the, you know, I've been talking about our Pomo California friend and, and I have a couple of them. One of them was actually in the uh, archeology span program at uh, UC Berkeley that I was at. He's now writing all this stuff um, about his, his deep um, tradition, but that's just one branch of the Pomo. Our other friend, Trina Vega um, is um, right. Is comes from a, a totally different branch of, of of the Pomo tradition. So, 
Um, but the, the, you know, there was a, a white boy who, uh, who went and studied with the um, keeper of the roundhouse for, for one of these traditions. I just heard about this guy recently. And the t- his teacher died like a year or two ago. Or maybe it was three. But um, there are people who are doing this. There are people who are authentically connecting. And I'm seeing um, Mary's hand up. So uh, what do you have to say, Mary? When you finished your, what you're saying, I just want to, I'm very inspired by what you're talking about. Oh, okay. Well, I'm, I'll just conclude by, by, by noting that this time I'm seeing much more connection with those people who have been through the effects of colonialism have been marginalized culturally. And that is changing. And that is a terribly welcome uh, development. Um, and and I'm, I can't, you know, <laughs> I've had to recently, there's a, there was a book that came out maybe five or six years ago, won awards, and it's about uh, the title I think is American Genocide, and it's about the incredible destruction of, of Native Californians. It's just so hard to read page after page of the detail that he gives. But I guess we had to come to this to that point where that kind of knowledge is becoming recognized widely for, I think, um, folks to feel like this is a more widespread uh, wisdom path. These are more widespread wisdom paths that can be um, accessed and shared by people who are willing to do the work, who are willing to be passive to those active traditions that remain. So go go ahead. And by people who have the... the, um wisdom and experience and matrix to, to recognize the sign of the times and how crucial it is at this point. And it has been for a very long time for us to listen to indigenous people, but um, it's, 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 it's the last hour in so many ways now, but I wanted to just comment on just your whole talk and how, uh, what an important conversation and consideration it is. And it just, um, about um, the question about whether to stay with one tradition or, or branch out to others. In my experience, like a true path really brings us to the universal. And that's what I hear in what you're speaking about, is that the foundation has been now this universal um, openness. And, you know, in, in our tradition, in the guru tradition, at some point, the guru becomes everything. We really understand what what the guru function is, that it becomes everything, including the person in the grocery store who says, did you remember the bird seat? Um, so to me, it's like an opening up to the universal and, and that, that, and, and also I, Stuart, you mentioned this thing about timing, that so much of it has to do with timing for us individually on the path, timing for us individually what we're ready for, what we can handle, 
And, um, and then there's the bigger timing of, of what you're bringing about the importance of indigenous wisdom. So I just want to thank you for the, for the, for your whole talk and what you've um, brought to us. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Do you want to say anything? <clears throat> Not to say that there's a, uh, do you have a comment? Any uh, additional questions or be, before we wrap? I have one more kind of comment with also kind of mirroring back what I took away from this um, and more just collaging here. I remember when I first kind of built the system I've worked on, which in many ways is a reflection of fourth way system. And I was, um, I wanted to present some friends of mine and one friend was a person who was born in the Congo, raised in the Congo. And we had a meeting and I described what I was putting out in the world. And he just took point blank. This is for you Westerners. <laughs> you know, we don't have these problems. It was so obvious to him. We don't have these problems. And I remember when I was working field from Burkina Faso doing a, theater work and I was kind of had a day with them to kind of talk to them about like what's going on and what's it like to be them what's it like to be us and it was just so obvious again the mirroring back of like you guys have very specific problems and um, and I feel like in a sense that's what a lot of the work has become for me over the years is to try to kind of get tighter and tighter around like these are the things we we really have to do here as a whitey widow you know whatever we are this western the whole we, I think you know what we've been pointing out that that's our that is a specific nut for us to crack and then yeah and then having that then there's the whole beyond that is so enthralling so enlivening and so ever opening you know this like we've just been so compacted yeah and that's we are our i think that's a unique component to our paths and i think that, that that's why i keep i've kind of started championing the fourth way more than i have in the past i think people are starting to get interested about it more because of that resonance that that was what gurdjieff was also very much kind of trying to zero in on that that particular thing that's our our nut. Yeah, it's, it's interesting as I uh, read some of the uh, um, uh, literature from the Dagra tradition. One of the <clears throat> famous uh, Dagra writers, uh, Maladome, uh, Maladome Some, some of you may have read, uh, has written a number of books uh, on the tradition and on the work of ritual. And it's not like people and uh, Burkina Faso don't have problems and don't have life issues they have to deal with, but they have a very different familial, fa- uh, family, family unit and structure to address those things. And it's just very different from ours. We're, we're way more alienated in the West, uh, and more isolated and more individuated. And we don't have the same kind of energetic support mechanisms that those communities have. So even ritual shows up very, you know, people are raised in ritual. So ritual has this incredible potency and power that just, you know, it's like mother's milk for people raised in those communities. So uh, when we come into, you know, a tradition like that, uh, with our Western kind of headset, um, it's an interesting, it's an interesting mix. And uh, what I, I guess what I find is, you know, for, for, I'm grateful for the fourth way for providing, you know, the tools to kind of get behind the heads, the Western headset, uh, uh, because it's a pretty precise set of tools for dealing with that and creating as, as, uh, Regina was saying, the kind of the, 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 maturity to allow me to go into a, you know, a different place and to partake of, uh, a, a very different context. But I'm also, 
you know, I guess as I, as I consider it, I, um, we as a, you know, I think we as a people are changing even in the West now. Uh, we, we are kind of moving. I mean, as crazy as it all seems right now and as uh, insane as everyone seems to be, you know, we're, we're kind of moving out of this scientific mindset and into this kind of mythic mindset now. And in that mythic mindset, there's a lot of interesting opportunities. It's not all just uh, a society collapsing and uh, everything, you know, uh, going to the devil. There's there's possibilities for genuine arising of a creative response to the reality of our situation on this planet. And in that sense, I think uh, I can be very hopeful about the changes that we're seeing even in the uh, Western uh, mind. Um, and who knows where that's going to go, but it's, it's not necessarily all, you know, craziness and uh, rifles and things like that. There, there, there could be, uh, uh, some really upwelling of creative energy. Well, I'll just add to that, 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 um, the, on this topic of ritual in my youth, I was, a, a, a Catholic altar boy and, um, there were wonderful things about Catholic ritual that I deeply appreciated. And then um, I had to let go of it for whatever mechanical or, or other reasons in my own makeup. But, um, but I'm, f I'm f reconnecting with the principle and practice of ritual as a tool that is, that can be useful. It's, it does entrain possibilities um, that are not, um, that are beyond um, what the scientistic and scientism views would, um, would permit. So I guess that's where we have to uh, end it, it looks like, time-wise. But thank you for your attention and your comments. I, I, I deeply appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's, it's, thank you. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a podcast we recorded on July 9th, 2022 for the Western Bow podcast series entitled Fourth Way Magic, How Hermetic and Indigenous Traditions Interface with the Gurdjieff Work. In recent years, Rob and I have explored and adopted practices from the Western Hermetic magical traditions and indigenous traditions, including African and Native Californian. In this talk, we discussed how the work from these traditions can enrich and expand the indispensable foundation we honor from the fourth way. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com, as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com, and join us again next Saturday.